During World War II, there was a German Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was opposed to the Nazis. Bonhoeffer gave a radio address two days after Hitler was made chancellor where he warned Germany against slipping into an idolatrous cult of the Fuhrer who he said could very well turn out to be a Verfuhrer, a misleader or a seducer. Now, needless to say, Bonhoeffer was not popular with the Nazi party. He was not on their list of favorite pastors, especially as many went along with the Nazi ideology and went along with what they were doing. At one point, Bonhoeffer was forbidden to speak in public. He was forbidden to publish anything. He had to give frequent reports on his activities. On April 6, 1943, Bonhoeffer was arrested. There were several charges against him, and among them was seeking to subvert Nazi policy toward the Jews. Further, the works of the Confessing Church, which he was one of the leaders of, uh, was defying the Gestapo order against speaking in public. Bonhoeffer was condemned to death on April 8, 1945, by an SS judge. There were no witnesses of the trial. There were no official records of the trial. Bonhoeffer was not allowed any defense at his trial. The next day, he along with several others, many of whom family members, his own family members, were stripped of all clothing, marched from their cells and executed uh, where they were hung by the neck with a thin wire. Now, I tell you this because a few weeks ago I started reading a book by Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. Now, some of the statements Bonhoeffer made were pretty startling and really they would sound extreme as far as what it means to be devoted to Jesus if they didn't come from someone who lived the life Bonhoeffer lived and died the, the death Bonhoeffer died. Now, the very first chapter of the book is called Costly grace, and it begins this way. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting day to day for a costly grace. Now, throughout the chapter, Bonhoeffer goes to great pains to explain what cheap grace is. And let me share some of how he defines it. Cheap grace is covering for sins where no contrition for sins is required and even less a desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace is a denial of the living word of God and a denial of the incarnation of the word of God. Cheap grace means justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Grace alone does everything, they say, and so everything can remain the way it was before. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is a grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus living and incarnate. Cheap grace is the poison killing the life of following Jesus. Cheap grace has turned out to be utterly merciless to our evangelical church. Cheap grace has been no less disastrous to our own spiritual lives. Instead of opening up the way to Jesus, it has closed it. Instead of calling us to follow Jesus, it has hardened us in our disobedience. Cheap grace bars our progress in spiritual growth, seduces us to the mediocre level of the world, and quenches the joy of discipleship. Cheap grace has been the ruin of more Christian than any commandment of works, or what we would call legalism. Now, the problem of cheap grace didn't end in Bonhoeffer's time with his death. 
although it's gone by many different names throughout the years. In the 80s, the church called it easy believism in the 80s and 90s. Uh, in the 2000s, cheap grace has been called uh, cultural Christianity or nominal Christianity. But the problem of cheap grace or cultural Christianity or easy believism really didn't even begin in Bonhoeffer's time. In the days of the seven churches, which we're looking at in Revelation, Jesus referred to it and he called it being lukewarm. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we recognize lukewarmness? How do we recognize it in our lives so we can repent of it and we can get away from it? Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14 should be page 951 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm asking you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Jesus says to the angel of the church of Laodiceans, right? These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold, and would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee, out of my mouth, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not. Thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. The title of the message this morning is A Lukewarm Church. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and devotion. We come this morning. And Lord, we want to have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We want to to listen, to let the word sink into our hearts and bring forth good fruit into our lives. We do not want to be lukewarm Christians who have embraced a sort of cheap grace, a nominal Christianity, which may look good on the outside, but leaves us filled with dead man's bones on the inside. Help us, Father, to let your word speak into our lives. Let your spirit move upon our hearts to challenge us and convict us if that's the need of the day. Father, if, if they're here today, if we're here today and we're discouraged, we're trying, we're moving, but we're, we're struggling, give us the strength to keep on going. If we have fallen back in our relationship with you, deal with us as children, bring us back to the place where we ought to be. And God, if we are lukewarm, make it absolutely abundantly clear that we are lukewarm or heading down that path. Let your spirit deal with us so we would be zealous and repent and we would not live and die lukewarm lives. Have your way today in all of our hearts and all of our lives. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are several facts about Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, which bear weight upon the message Jesus sent to the church. The city itself was... In the junction of three of the most important highways of its day, this led to the city becoming extremely wealthy. An example of their wealth was found in A.D. 60. A strong earthquake hit the city and it was essentially destroyed. It, along with the cities around it, Colossae and Heropolis. And, and the Roman government issued what we would call today disaster relief funds. Colossae, Heropolis took the money, rebuilt the city. The Laodiceans, though, they told Rome, no, we have all our own money. 
And through their own money, through their own efforts, they rebuilt the city. So the city itself knew what it was to be rich and increased with goods and see they had need of nothing from anyone else. They were also three lucrative businesses that were based in Laodicea. One was finance and banking. One was a medical school that produced an eye salve that they exported around the world. The third was clothing manufacturing. The people in Laodicea, they knew what it was for other people to be poor and blind and naked. Now, despite the wealth of Laodicea, they had one major problem. It's water supply. The water supply came about six miles to the south. And by the time it reached the city of Laodicea, it was warm by the sun and it was of a lukewarm temperature. Now, the neighboring cities didn't have this problem. Heropolis had a hot springs famous for its healing and soothing qualities. Colossae had a a cold, pure spring uh, that they got nearby. And so the people of Laodicea knew what it was about lukewarm water to make people nauseous. Now, chances are we're all familiar with Jesus talking about being lukewarm, not hot nor cold, being spewed out of the mouth. This is the most famous, probably the most famous line of any of the seven letters. So we're all familiar with that idea. Part of what we have to see with this idea, though, is Laodicea is, as I've mentioned, one of two churches which receives no commendation. Jesus doesn't praise them for anything they're doing well. He launches straight into correction of them because of their lukewarm condition. Now, in light of the fact they are lukewarm and they receive no praise from Jesus, we have to recognize what he does not rebuke them for. He does not rebuke them for rampant immorality as he does other churches. Now, other churches are, have embraced the mindset of the world and have the morals of the world. And Jesus deals with them about that. But the people in Laodicea, there is no rebuke of their immorality. Jesus does not rebuke them for accepting false teaching. Right again, he has rebuked several of the churches for allowing false teachers to come and have influence, but not so with Laodicea. It is entirely possible this church, which received no praise, no commendation from Jesus at all, lived morally pure lives. It is entirely possible that they had an orthodox doctrine. Right. So if they were to list what they believed on their church website, it would tick all the marks necessary to say, yes, that is a conservative, orthodox church of Jesus Christ. And yet they still receive no praise, no commendation from Jesus. Their rebuke is based solely on the fact they are lukewarm. Jesus sees lukewarmness. As a massive spiritual issue. And so we must as well. Now, that we must is something we have to get. Because it is common in our day for people not to see an issue with this. I visited with a guy years ago. He was dying. And I visited him on his deathbed. And he defined himself as being lukewarm. And said he had never really found anything about the faith to be all that excited about. And and he's not alone. That mindset is so common in our day. And yet Jesus has nothing positive, nothing good, nothing praiseworthy for this lukewarm church. So the message today I've got broken up into two parts. The first part 
characteristics of lukewarm, right? I mean, how would we know if we were lukewarm? How would we know if we were drifting toward lukewarmness? Well, we're going to look at some characteristics. And then the second part is how to overcome the pool. So the characteristics of, of a lukewarm church or of lukewarm people. Now, let me say before we get started, these are going to sound harsh. But that is what Jesus says, and so we have to take it at that. So first, lukewarm people are useless for the kingdom. Right? Jesus says in verse 15 that they are neither hot nor cold. And he would that they were cold nor hot. Now, probably you may be thinking useless for the kingdom is an overly harsh statement. That's exactly what Jesus means in verse 15 by he wishes they were cold or that they were hot, but they're not either one. Now, keep in mind the main complaint Laodicea had was their water. Right? There was uh, Heropolis, which had the hot springs. There was Colossae, which had the cold springs. And Laodicea, though, they had lukewarm water that was neither hot nor cold. It was sort of nauseating when they drank it. Knowing this, Jesus uses their water condition to deal with their spiritual condition. To tell them how they were and how he wishes they would be. Now, we have to understand what hot and cold means in light of the water condition of Laodicea. If you're like me, you were probably raised and you heard hot or cold. Hot meant on fire for Jesus. Cold meant just totally away from Jesus, right? Not a nominal sense. But that's really not what Jesus meant at all. The cold, he was referring to the cold springs of Colossae. Cold water, which is refreshing, good on a hot day to help cool you off, to help refresh you when you've labored and and gone away in the heat. And he wishes the church in Laodicea was a refreshing church. He wishes they refreshed the weary. They encouraged the discouraged. They they helped people along the way. Then there's the hot springs of Heropolis. And the hot springs, of course, that's where you, you sit and you soak your sore muscles. And it has its healing quality, so they, they believed. And he wishes they could help people along the way like that. He, he wishes they could bring kind of this help and healing and soothing if they were hot and they were on fire for him. But they were neither. So from the standpoint of, of Jesus... Their ministry provided neither refreshment nor healing. They could, they neither helped nor hurt anyone along the way. They could only cause nausea. They were useless for the kingdom. Now the idea of them being useless for the kingdom is not unique to the church at Laodicea. It's very similar to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 verses 34 and 35 about salt that's lost its savor. Now, Anyone remember what Jesus says about salt that's lost its savor, right? It's not fit for the land or the dung pile, which I've always thought was strange. That's an amazing thing, right? How would something be so useless it would ruin a pile of dung? But that's what he says about salt that has lost its savor. It's, it, it's so worthless, it's not even fit to be put on a pile of manure. Well, the context of what he means by salt that's lost its savor is people who profess to be disciples but aren't devoted. Right? In the, in the verses leading up to that, Jesus has talked about the cost of discipleship. Right? We have to, to be willing to die to ourselves. We have to take up our cross. We have to love him more than we love our families. We have to love him more than we love our own lives. And if 
we choose to say, I'm going to be his disciple, but I'm not going to offer that kind of devotion, then I'm like salt that it's lost its savor. I'm embracing a cheap sort of grace, a nominal sort of Christianity, a, a profession of faith which bears none of the fruit of genuine salvation or lukewarm and totally useless for the kingdom of God. Those who are lukewarm, who have embraced a cheap grace, are useless for the kingdom. They cannot help advance or help the cause of Christ at all. Lukewarm people are also in danger. Jesus says in verse 16, because they are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, he will spew thee, spew them out of his mouth. Now, this was probably referencing the fact lukewarm water was used to induce vomiting. Uh, it was often used with those who had ingested poisons. They would vomit the poison out of their system. One New Testament scholar said the word for spew carried with it the idea of rejecting something out of extreme disgust. And this is really the only place it's used in the New Testament. So he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. But that's not all he says about them that would mean they're in danger. He says in verse 17 that they are also wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. And then in verse 20, Jesus is outside knocking, wanting them to open the door and invite him in. To be with him. And one of the last things Bonhoeffer said about cheap grace. He said cheap grace is another name for damnation. Again that can sound really harsh. But is, is that an accurate statement? Is cheap grace another name for damnation? And if so, is cheap grace and lukewarm are the same thing? We, we quickly see the danger the lukewarm are in. But we want to push back and say no, no, no. That's not the case. Surely... They, they've made a profession. They've lived good lives. They, they affirm right doctrine. Surely they're not damned. They're not lost. The word saying lukewarm is another name for damnation. Is, it's a bit too far. But is it? Look at how Jesus describes them yet again. He is going to vomit them out of his mouth. They are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He is outside knocking, waiting for them to open the door and let him in. Is there any place in Scripture where believers, those who are born again, disciples of Jesus, even erring ones, are described in these terms? I don't know of any. Even the erring church at Corinth is described as saints who are being sanctified in Christ Jesus. The only people ever described in the sort of terms we see here are those who are lost. Those who are not born again. I mean, if Jesus is not... I mean, think about what we've seen about Jesus walking in the midst of the candlesticks, which represents the church. But He's not walking in the midst of Laodicea, is He? He's outside, knocking on the door, wanting them to let him in. Believers in Jesus Christ are never wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's what they were before. But then when they came to Jesus, they were something different. 
Jesus vomiting a disciple out of his mouth? No, they are the beloved of God. They are co-heirs with Christ. They are adopted children accepted in the beloved. Nowhere in the Bible are those who are born again described in these sorts of terms. We must conclude a lukewarm Christian is not a Christian at all. A lukewarm person is in danger because they are outside the kingdom. They are apart from Jesus Christ. They are not saved. The danger of the lukewarm is the danger of judgment. The lukewarm are self-deceived. Look at verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and need of nothing and knowest not thou art wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. They are deceived, but it's a a self-deception. And there are two primary ways they have deceived themselves. The first is in they have they are self-deceived about the value of their stuff. Now, as I said, Laodicea was a wealthy city. And all indications from what Jesus says here, I'm rich and increased with goods. They are a wealthy church as well. And their physical prosperity caused them to feel secure in their stuff and feel they were self-sufficient and really did not need anything. And this physical security and self-sufficiency had carried over into their spiritual lives. They felt they were just as secure physically or spiritually as they were physically. Now, from what I can tell in reading this letter, their prosperity seems to be a part of the reason they're lukewarm. All of the stuff they had, all of the comfort brought into their life by their stuff caused them to realize, think they did not need any more from Jesus than they needed from Rome. They didn't need any more from Jesus than they needed from anyone else in their lives. Their wealth and their stuff caused them to be lukewarm because they overvalued how important that stuff was. Now, I doubt they said this as clearly as I just said it, but their lukewarm devotion is evidence of this. As a general rule, we are most committed to what we most value. I mean, for any of us, the best way to find out what is important to us is just to see what we do with our lives. How do we live day in and day out? When we are more devoted, more committed to acquiring and holding on to the wealth and stuff than we are to Jesus, it will be seen in how we live and what we do in our day-to-day lives. Let me give you an example from the Gospels. The Gospels tells us the story of a rich young man who came to Jesus wanting to know how to be saved. Jesus said, you know the commandments? He said, I do. Which ones? And Jesus told him. He said, well, I've kept all those since I was a youth. Jesus, it says in the Gospel of Mark, looked at him and loved him. And that will become important later on. He said, here's one thing you like. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me and let me give you true riches from heaven. You may remember the, the young man's response. He was sad. And he walked away. And it says because he had great wealth. Jesus said how, how hard it is for the wealthy. To enter the kingdom of God. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy to be saved. His, this, that young man's value system prevented him from giving Jesus the type of commitment he demanded. The type of commitment Jesus deserved. Now, In, in our culture, 
where we are a, a wealthy, even if we wouldn't define ourselves as wealthy, when you look at like the global system, we are a wealthy nation and a wealthy people. We have more disposable income, more stuff than other nations of the world. So in light of that, how might we be like the rich young ruler? How might we value our comfort over Jesus? How, how might we value our wealth over Jesus? In what ways might we value our stuff over Jesus? The lukewarm are, are self-deceived because they value their comfort, their wealth, and their stuff more than they value Jesus. And it prevents them from giving him the kind of devotion he demands and he deserves. They're also spiritually or self-deceived about their spiritual condition. They see themselves as rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. But Jesus has an entirely different assessment of them. Wretched and miserable, poor, blind, naked. They, they don't even realize it. They don't know what their spiritual condition is like. If you were to talk to them, they would say they were saved. I mean, again, keep in mind, this isn't. A group of individuals. This is a church. They're gathering on Sunday. They're singing songs. There's a pastor declaring the word of God to them. They probably invite people to come in. Come and visit our church and come be a part of it. So this is these are church people he's talking to here. This isn't the people out there that never darken the door of a church except that, you know, when somebody dies or somebody gets married. These are church people. So they're in the church and they think they're fine, but they're actually something quite different. They have believed one thing about themselves spiritually and something else is true. And this, I believe, is the scariest part of being lukewarm. They believe they were fine, but they were not. They were deceived and almost certainly this was a self-deception. Something they had done to themselves by making excuses for their lukewarm condition. And if we're honest, we're masters. I mean, the human heart is, is a master of self-deception. We can do just about anything in the world and justify it as okay. We can do the same thing as, I can do the same bad thing Red might do. And then say red is terrible for doing it, but it's different because I did it when I did it. We are easily self-deceived because we want to believe. We want to believe we're okay no matter what else is going on in our lives. We're masters at making excuses for our lack of service to Jesus. Well, when I get older, right now I'm in high school and... College and there's just too many young people things to do. Or, well, we just got married and now we've got all these other things. Or we just had our kids or we're trying to make our living. Or, well, now we're re retired and it, we, there's so many things we can't do anymore. And, and on and on it goes. But all of these excuses, they're self-deception. We're, we're masters at making excuses for our lack of hunger for God's word. We don't read it. We don't study it. We don't long to hear it, to, to be in it, to let it speak into our lives. And we, we make excuses. Well, I'm not a good reader. 
Or I've got all these other books I have to read for school. I don't want to read that. Or I don't understand the King James Bible. And all the while, there are audio books. There's free Bible translation. There's great Bible translations, free audio books we can get. There, there, there's legitimately no reason any of us wouldn't have a Bible and read our Bible. And our, our making excuses is self-deception of the lukewarm. We're masters at making excuses for our lack of sharing the gospel. Well, I don't feel called to that kind of a, the ministry. I'm not gifted in that way. Well, I, I, you can't push too hard. Well, the opportunity just wasn't clear. And meanwhile, it's just an excuse we're making. We, we're masters at making excuses for our lack of generosity. Well, we've got to save up for this. We've got that coming up. Well, I, I couldn't do this. We're, we're masters at making excuses when we don't see the fruit of the Spirit being born on a regular basis. In our lives. Well, my parents, I was raised this way. That's just how I am. All the while, it's just the self deception of the lukewarm. Now, we don't call this making excuses for being lukewarm. For the most part, we would never acknowledge it. Being lukewarm is like being lazy. Nobody wants to acknowledge that. In fact, many would get angry. Someone were to come to us and say, you seem to be lukewarm in certain areas of your life. The fact we don't like it doesn't diminish the reality. It's like one pastor I heard say, just because I serve in a lukewarm way and read my Bible in a lukewarm way and worship in a lukewarm way, that doesn't really mean I'm lukewarm. The lukewarm are self-deceived. And then finally, the lukewarm are loved. (laughs) This is really good news in light of everything else we've already seen. But look at verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Now this, again, to me this is huge. Because we can look at this rebuke and we can, if we're not careful, we can almost despair. Over the sternness of it. But then Jesus says, I I love you. That's why it's stern. Now, this I think is important. Our culture today would tell us love means acceptance, right? That if you love someone, you accept them as they are and you never correct them. No matter what they believe or what they say or what they do. Love means just saying you be you. And yet Jesus would say it means the opposite. Jesus would tell us love means seeing the issues and correcting them. Pointing them out and saying no, this is wrong. It would be unloving for Jesus to leave us in our lukewarm condition. It would be unloving for Jesus not to prick our hearts about this. It would be unloving for Jesus to say, you're okay, that's fine, go on about your way. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. The most unloving thing we can do is confirm people in their sin, in their rejection, in their rebellion against Jesus. Love 
is having the hard conversation. And again, it's because they're in danger. I mean, I know that it's a cliche to say, oh, if your kid was drinking poison, but it made them happy. You wouldn't just let them drink it, would you? No. If your kid was playing in the street, a busy street, but it made them happy, you wouldn't just leave them there, would you? No. Why? Because they will die. It will kill them. Lukewarmness will kill them eternally. Physically, they will be fine, probably. Physically, they will be okay. Eternally, they will be damned. And love confronts that. Love says this is wrong. Jesus loves the church at Laodicea, and so he rebukes them and he chastens them. Jesus loves us, and so he rebukes us and he chastens us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of these things, the way it's worded, I don't like any of that. I do not want to be useless for the kingdom. I don't want to be in danger of damnation. I don't want to be self-deceived. I I do, however, want to be loved. And while I don't like the wording, when you really look at what it is to be lukewarm, I feel the pull of it. Lukewarmness is most definitely the, the spirit of our day in the American church. Just attend a little bit, give a little bit, Read a little bit. Be basically moral. Affirm the right things. You're good to go. Everybody goes to heaven when they die. As long as they do that. I told our our Sunday school class this morning. When I did hospice chaplaining. I visited people all in the panhandle. Who were on their deathbed. Everybody was saved. Didn't matter how they had lived their lives. Didn't matter what they did on the day to day. Everybody was saved. They, they, they were good people. They believed in God, I guess. This, this is the spirit of our age. It's pulling at us to be complacent. It's pulling at us. Don't, don't get extreme. Don't take things too seriously. Just, just be a little moral. Yeah, sure, you ought to believe in God. And, and Jesus is probably real too. That's, but that's good enough. Don't, don't get carried away. You don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to be an extremist. You don't want to be one of them. Just keep it all in balance. But the balance, what the world says be in balance, is what Jesus says is lukewarm. What Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. I mean, Jesus called on us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, follow him. That's that's pretty extreme. I don't I don't want to be lukewarm. I feel it. It pulls at me regularly. It pulls at me to let go. It pulls at me to to not take this too far to to just just be casual in your devotion. Don't get carried away. In our day, this sort of lukewarmness or cheap grace, it goes by lots of names. It goes by sort of a progressive Christianity. It goes by the idea of just me and Jesus, right? I don't need the church, just me and Jesus. We've got our own thing. 
having balance, you know, you can't get out of control. But no matter how it's packaged or what it's called, it's still cheap grace. It's still lukewarmness. It's still synonymous with damnation. So how do we overcome the pull to being lukewarm? Well, as we look throughout the letter, Jesus gives himself as the answer, right? Who he is in verse 14, his counsel in verse 18, respond to him in verse 19, open the door, verse 20. And essentially, Jesus enables us to overcome the pull of being lukewarm. Jesus enables us to overcome the pull of being lukewarm. So what do we do so Jesus can enable us to overcome the pull of being lukewarm quickly? Ish, Submit to the authority of Jesus. Jesus tells us about who he is in verse 14. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He's stating his bona fides, his reason he ought to be heard. Why you should listen to what he has to say. First, he's true. He's the amen, the faithful and the true witness. He's informing them that what he says is is right and real. It's true. It's the right answer. So anytime we read these words of Jesus and they they prick our hearts, they convict our lives. Then what we can say is Jesus is right and I'm wrong. That's what it means. Jesus is true. He's true. And if what I believe isn't in sync with Jesus, he's true. I'm false. If what I'm doing isn't in sync with Jesus, he's right and I'm wrong. So to submit to the authority of Jesus is to accept no matter what he says, no matter how challenging it is to me personally, to my beliefs, to my life, to what I've been taught in the world. If Jesus said it, he's true and I'm wrong. He is 100% accurate, 100% of the time. And if it contradicts me and everyone else I know, let God be true and every man a liar, Paul would say in Romans. Jesus is true, but Jesus is also Lord. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, he's not saying he's the first being God created. Instead, he's talking about being preeminent over the creation of God. In fact, the NIV translates this as Jesus being the ruler of God's creation, which is a great way to understand it. He is Lord overall. This has been a massive theme up to this point, and it's going to be a continue to be a massive theme throughout the book of Revelation. So Jesus isn't just a guy with an opinion, right? If I were to come to you and say, this is wrong in your life, I may be right and I may be wrong. I could be just a judgmental jerk. I could be completely wrong because I don't know your heart or I could be right. And me just saying it doesn't really carry any authority with it anyway because ultimately I'm just a guy. But Jesus is Lord over God's creation. He is the one who has the right to say, follow me and expect that we'll get up from the receipt of custom and follow him. He is the one who has the right to say, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come with me and expect we will sell all that we have. Give it to the poor and go follow him. He is Lord. He is the Lord who is always right. 
So we start fighting lukewarmness by submitting to the authority of Jesus. And if we've been convicted by His Word, we're not on fire. We're not hot or cold. We are lukewarm. Rather than start making excuses, rather than start saying, well, there's this or there's that, we say, no, Jesus is true. So this is right. Jesus is Lord. So I must respond. Secondly, receive what is needed from Jesus. Right? So they are wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. But he counsels them to buy of him gold tried with the fire. They may be rich. White raiment that they may be clothed. And the shame of their nakedness would be covered. And anoint their eyes with eye salve that they may see. What did they need? Well, they were wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. So they needed... First, they needed true riches. All all they had was money and stuff. And that's not eternally important. So what they needed to do was go to Jesus and receive from Him the heavenly riches. Like what it talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There are true riches awaiting us with Jesus. And so we, we go to Him for what is eternally valuable. Not merely what is Earthly valuable. Secondly, they needed white raiment that they may be clothed. Now, white raiment almost always in the Bible, and especially in Revelation, refers to righteousness given to us by Jesus. So we need to go to Jesus. We're naturally wretched, miserable, and naked. And what we need is Him to give us His righteousness in our lives. But there's a, a recognition we don't have any on our own. We're, we're not naturally righteous people. Naturally, we are unrighteous. And we need Him to give us His righteousness. And we need an eye salve so we can see. We're, we're naturally spiritually blind. And we want to be spiritually blind. I mean, we, we're self-deceived because we want to be self-deceived. And what we need is Him to... To give us an eye salve that would enable us to see with spiritual eyes and see our true condition and see what's really going on in our lives. So we submit to the authority of Jesus. And when it shows us you're lukewarm here, you've moved this way, then we go to Jesus. Now, again, I think this is super important because we don't just feel bad. Feeling bad is never the point. Of Jesus' dealing with us. Not when we're lost and He's trying to deal with us to bring Him for salvation. And not when we're saved and we've strayed. Feeling bad is not the point. Feeling bad can be very self-centered if we're not careful. Feeling bad can be, oh, woe is me. They're just so mean to me. Poor me. Poor me. Look at me. Ooh, me. And be sure of this. Jesus is not bringing attention to you so you can glorify you. Ever. When He has dealt with us, our response is to deny self and flee to Him. Whether we're lost and we flee to Him for salvation, or whether we've grown lukewarm and we're fleeing to Him to be revived. But we submit to His authority, not by feeling bad and whining, but by going to Jesus to receive from Him what we need. Thirdly, Respond to the love of Jesus. Be zealous and repent. Repent of being lukewarm. 
repent of it anytime we see it, anytime we're aware of it, anytime he shows us this. Do it because he loves us. How great the father's love that he would deal with us and not let us just drift away. And to recognize this is a great love of a great God. I'm saying this all. We should be amazed by this. Jesus is God who took on flesh, who died because of our sin. He then sent his spirit to call us to himself. And then he saves us when we respond and he fills us with his spirit. And still at times we stray. Still at times we drift into lukewarmness. We value stuff over him. Wouldn't he be just? To leave us in our condemnation. To let us go and say, be done with you then. But he doesn't. In love, he reaches out to us. In love, he rebukes us. In love, he chastens us. How great is a love that would chase after us when we're telling him, I don't want you. That kind of love ought to be responded to zealously. Repent. Prioritize fellowship with Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. and will sup with him and he with me. Jesus wants us to recognize, to, to recognize our condition and to, to be with him. I mean, he, he knocks. He convicts, he rebukes, he does all of this. So we will come and fellowship with him. And this speaks of relationship being restored. But the relationship doesn't have to be restored if the relationship is never broken. Right? If we prioritize our fellowship with Jesus in our lives, we're, we're not going to drift into lukewarmness. But if we make a point to pray to Jesus, If we make a point to to worship Jesus, if we make a point to read the words of Jesus, to to just spend time focusing on the glories of Jesus, how would we grow lukewarm that way? How would we drift into the way of the world if all of that time is spent with Jesus? Now, I, I know none of us, nobody can just sit and read their Bible 24 hours a day and pray 24 hours a day and sing praise songs 24 hours a day. That's just not the world we live in. We, we have stuff that has to be done. But is our time with Jesus a priority in our lives? Do we, do we prioritize it so we do it? That if, if it comes between watching Desperate Housewives or reading my Bible, I'm going to read my Bible and not watch Desperate Housewives. If I have to get up 30 minutes earlier to pray, I'm going to get up 30 minutes earlier rather than sleep so I can pray. Because all of those little things that, well, today I'm going to let this go and I'm going to let that go. All of those are the drifts toward lukewarmness. And through it all, Jesus has come back. Open the door. I'm looking for you. But if we prioritize our relationship with him and we prioritize time with him, We won't drift to begin with. And if we've started drifting, then the response is to start focusing back on Jesus, prioritizing that time with him. And then lastly, 
live in light of eternity with Jesus. Now, I know you're thinking we've gone past, but it's only 11.05. I have 55 more minutes to preach. Verse 21, it says, To him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father and him at his throne. Now, look at chapter 4. And I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. The first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me and said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there was in heaven one set upon a throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne. And sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne there were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting and clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceedeth lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. In the midst of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and about and it goes on verse 8 and the four beasts and they had six wings about him and they were full of eyes within they rest not day and night saying holy 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 lord god almighty which was and is and is to come and when they do this the four and twenty elders fell down before the throne they worship him that liveth forever and they said thou art worthy o lord to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things for thy pleasure they are created What Jesus is promising in verse 21 is to get to be a part of what he's talking about in chapter 4. I think this is one of the reasons lukewarmness is going to make him spew. Jesus is like, I I came and died for you. I offer you this scene of glory. And rather than pursue me and follow me, who has done this and is offering you this, you go after these rotting, temporary Things. Can, can you imagine? I, I debated all week about whether to use this, but I'm going to. Can you imagine if you come home this week and your spouse was looking at pornography? And it was an image on a screen, not, not even a person they knew, just some random porn star. And you said, I'm sorry, that's not okay with me. You, you can't have a relationship with porn and, and have. I'm right here. I'm a real person. I'm I'm here. Choose me instead of that. And your spouse said, no, no. No, no, I want both. I want all the porn I want. And I want you as well. But would we be okay with them choosing an image on a screen over us as physical, real people who love them and are devoted to them? Wouldn't that make us kind of sick at our stomach to think about? Isn't that similar to what we're doing? If we are lukewarm and we're choosing this stuff, this this temporary stuff that doesn't care about us, it's going to perish, it's going to burn up, and we're choosing all of this junk. What what Paul calls in Philippians scubala, dumb, over Jesus who died for us, over this scene of glory in Revelation chapter 4. Can't you see why that would make Jesus spew? We, we have to live in light of eternity with Jesus. What we will receive then. Well, it's far better than anything we give up now. 
Nothing here is worth even remotely what Jesus offers us then. Live in light of that eternity and we won't drift into lukewarmness. To close, I do want to give us a time to pray. I want to give us three specific ways to pray. First, reveal any areas of my life where I'm lukewarm. Absolutely, God wants to show us. Psalm 139, right? Search me and try me. If there are areas of lukewarmness in our life and we pray this, Jesus will, without fail, reveal it to us. Secondly, do not let me be content with being lukewarm. Now here we're praying for Jesus to make us miserable. If we have given ourselves to it, we are naturally content with it. We, we want Him to disturb us. Make us not okay with it. And, and then thirdly, do whatever it takes to keep me from being lukewarm. Now I, I put it this way intentionally. Not help me overcome it. Because if we say help me overcome it, we put the power in our hands. I'm going to fix it. You kind of guide me and I'll take care of it. And then I'll do as much as I want to do and then I'll stop there. That's what we'll do. Because that's just our natural human nature. We want Him to do it. We want Him to do whatever is necessary in our lives to shake us out of lukewarmness. If we're there. Now, if you tell me you're not, I'm not going to come and say you are. I don't... I mean, I, I, this isn't a message, you people are all terrible human beings and worthless disciples of Jesus. If you'd get straight, the world would be a better place. It's not. This is, here's what Jesus has said. And if we're lukewarm, we'd better deal with it because we're in danger. And if you're not, then Godspeed. Stay the course. It'll be worth it in the end. We want Jesus to, to do it. I was praying this this week. As I prayed through this passage on Monday to start my week off. And I realized I had drifted to being lukewarm in some areas. I was really bothered. I mean, I wouldn't have said I was. But it turns out I was. And I was, I was real, real bothered by that. So I have prayed all week for God to do what it took to keep me from being that way. I don't want to live that way. I'd rather even kill me now. I'd rather die now than live to be 80 and be lukewarm. But we need to pray and take this seriously. Because a lukewarm church, useless for the kingdom, won't reach nobody, won't save nobody, won't help nobody. So let's take time.